Hello, my rebels. What if the broken airports in Canada, what if the failing economy is not an accident, not a mistake, but actually on purpose? What if that's part of Trudeau's build back better, his great reset? Hear me out. I'll try and make the case that this is actually what Trudeau wants. Uh, before I get to that on the podcast, let me tell you about the video version of this podcast. We call it the Ezra Levant Show. Um, it's actually how I design the show with video in mind. I often show clips or charts or things like that, photographs. So I'd like to encourage you to subscribe for it. It is eight bucks a month, but you get the nightly video version. Plus, we have four other shows each week. So every month, that's 36 programs for just eight bucks a month. And of course, we rely on that money because we don't take any money from Trudeau, which is how we get to be so independent. Anyhow, go to Real, sorry, Rebel News Plus, rebelnewsplus.com, click subscribe. And Bob's your uncle. All right, here's today's show. Tonight, what if the broken airports aren't a mistake, but actually something that Trudeau wants, the great reset to build back better? It's June 30th, and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Shame on you, you censorious bug. You know, I think they talk more about Ukraine in Parliament than they do about Alberta. Uh, it's the same in the United States. Another day, another billion dollars added to the nearly $50 billion sent to that country. I wonder if there's other parts of America that could use, I don't know, $50 million to cope with problems. Um, there is one thing Canada could do for Ukraine and to check the power of Russia. Russia, which truly is an oil and gas economy, that's the vast majority of their um, foreign currency. They are one of the world's largest producer of oil, basically tied with Saudi Arabia and the United States as the top producer. And natural gas, not only do they have an enormous amount, but they have a near monopoly on supplying gas, especially to parts of Europe, um, the Baltics, even Germany, 30 to 40 percent of their energy comes from Russia. And as you know, we've talked about this before. When you put sanctions on Russia, if you're part of Europe, you're actually putting sanctions on yourself because... Russia could probably survive having its gas pipeline to Germany cut off, but could Germany? Well, the answer is obviously no, because they haven't cut it off. So all the tough talk about sanctions of Russia, there's a giant asterisk, which is that Europe hasn't stopped buying Russian oil and gas for one day. In fact, the only change is that they're now buying much of it in rubles as the currency, which has strengthened the Russian economy. The ruble tumbled early in the war. Now it's fully recovered. My point is that I, I don't think Russia has lost in some of the ways that the Western media says they have. I think it's lost reputationally, and some of the oligarchs have had their yachts seized. And I, I think diplomatically things are terrible. But economically, I think they've done okay because of oil and gas. Which brings us to Canada, because Canada actually has the third largest oil reserves in the world, courtesy of the oil sands. 
And in fact, we have half of the world's accessible oil. What I mean by that is you can't just go to Saudi Arabia and start drilling. You need the permission of the government. They have a monopoly over there. If you want oil and gas, Alberta is the place, except that is the one thing Justin Trudeau will not do for Ukraine. He'll give money. He'll give a few weapons, though his talk is bigger than his action. He'll go and visit Kiev and hang out with the rock band U2. But the one thing Justin Trudeau actually could do that he refuses to do is open up the pipes of Canadian oil and gas to not just Ukraine, but other European countries. He refuses. He refuses to build pipelines. He refuses to allow the replacement of Russian conflict oil with Canadian ethical oil. He will not be moved on that. All he'll offer is some talk about green energy. It's not what Ukraine needs right now. And it got me thinking that what Trudeau really wants is for oil and gas to be phased out. He, he doesn't want the oil and gas sector to be successful. He means it when he cuts off pipelines. And it got me thinking of another economic disaster that's happening right now in Canada. I mean, I think killing the pipelines is an enormous economic disaster that will take trillions of dollars out of the Canadian economy over time and hundreds of thousands of jobs over time. And of course, it will not allow us to displace OPEC and Russian crude oil. But what about what's going on in the airlines? Take a look at these images from Toronto Pearson Airport, the largest in the country. Montreal is even worse. Here, take a listen to uh, this fella from Montreal's airport. We're, we're getting very close to that. I, 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 we're having discussions, and, and it's, it's likely either the frequencies, the number of, of flights that we'll have on a given destination, or destinations themselves. But it's very sensitive, obviously. We have people that have booked vacation, uh, so the airlines will have to be extremely careful on how they manage that. But it's likely that to get some equilibrium in this and, and rebalance the system, we'll have to get to that. Yeah. The airports are in free fall. I saw the other day that Air Canada is simply suspending many of its uh, flights. For example, it no longer services Moncton or Bathurst, New Brunswick. Sorry, guys. Just can't do it. I received an email as I'm sure many of you did, it looked like a mass email from the CEO of Air Canada explaining that they simply cannot fly as they want to. They're, I understand, canceling 154 flights per day. That's tens of thousands of people. Some of that's just a vacation, but some of it's important, not just business meetings, but a wedding, a funeral. And isn't a family vacation once a year especially if you haven't had one during the pandemic. That's important, too. Why are they being canceled? I mean, look at this incredible view of the baggage uh, carousel in Toronto. It's not actually Air Canada's fault. It's not actually WestJet's fault. Some parts of it are. I mean, they make mistakes, too. And they were only too happy to go along with the federal government's demand that they fire their unvaccinated staff. That can't help when you take hundreds of both airplane staff, but ground staff, gate agent staff, out of the picture. But as we've gone through in some detail before, as demonstrated by Duncan Dee, the former COO of Air Canada, 
It's the absurd rules that the government has newly imposed upon the industry that are breaking it. Airports are not mass uh, health triage facilities. They're designed for quick on and quick off the planes. And once you start adding hours to any one flight, it's a domino effect. It's destroyed the industry for months to come. But I was thinking about Trudeau saying no. We do not want to revive the Canadian oil patch. We do not want to build pipelines, even though that is actually an enormous thing that could really help Ukraine. Trudeau doesn't believe in doing the one thing they actually need because he is so ideologically committed to phase out the oil sands. He said so himself. Take a listen. We can't shut down the oil sands tomorrow. Uh, we need to phase them out. We need to manage the transition off of our dependence on fossil fuels. Uh, that is going to take time. And in the meantime, we have to manage that transition. And so it got me thinking about these airports. Trudeau doesn't think that there's a crisis. He's certainly not acting like it. He hasn't taken any steps, even though there's obvious steps he could take immediately to make the problem better. He wants this. Now, why would he want it? I think he likes the idea of reduced flying. I think he likes the World Economic Forum motto, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. He uses the phrase, build back better, as all the globalists do. But Trudeau's actually never built anything in his life. He's never fixed a problem. He's never created something. When he says build back better, he's not talking about building pipelines or building an economy. He means building in a new ideological approach to things. Build back better means build back more socialistically, build back more uh, environmentally, not to actually build anything better, but to inject his ideology into things. The crumbling air industry in Canada isn't a bug. It's a feature. It's what he wants. He wants it to punish people who were unvaccinated and he didn't want them to fly at all. But he wants to punish people who make the foolish choice to engage in a high carbon lifestyle, himself accepted, of course. I see that Trudeau is overseas again, this time I think in Madrid. He's in Canada less and less. Have you noticed that? He was sick. He got COVID the other day, but he keeps flying. Funny, for you and me, that would be illegal. You're not allowed to fly into Canada if you're sick. You're not allowed to fly out of Canada if you're sick. But he said he got COVID despite being allegedly triple jab, but he flew in and flew out. He did not quarantine. Laws don't apply to him. He keeps flying, but he's obviously not flying through Pearson International Airport or the airport named after his father in Montreal. He's flying private. He keeps flying. I think Canada is in deep trouble but I'm happy to see that some foreign media are noticing. Remember, it was when a former NHL player who now works for a uh, U.S. Uh, sports broadcaster called Barstool Sports was trapped in Pearson Airport and did a viral rant. That's what finally caused Trudeau to lift the rule against the unvaccinated flying. Uh, I noticed uh, that the Wall Street Journal has taken an interest in the meltdown in the Toronto and Montreal airports. And why not? Those two cities are extremely connected to the United States. In the before times, there must have been 50 flights a day between Toronto and New York, between Montreal and Boston. I mean, those two hubs between Vancouver and L.A. 
all of that was restricted because of Trudeau's bizarre rules as he builds back better. And so it's sort of natural that American media are paying attention. I'm very hopeful because the Canadian media doesn't really much care about anything, really about anything. They're part of the team. I, I think that there's a problem in Canada as the government oozes in every part of life. And that's why I, I mentioned the Wall Street Journal, because I think we need some foreigners to help us. In Canada, too many things have been absorbed by the center. Um, in Canada, build back better means like what I said it does. It's not to actually build back better. It's not to improve prosperity for people. Justin Trudeau says he cares about inflation, but he will not do something he could do immediately to fight inflation, which is remove his carbon tax. You remove the carbon tax, you lower the price of everything. That's the opposite of inflation. Now, when you fill up for gas, obviously, it's cheaper, but everything that runs on gas, from tractors at the farm to trucks that bring you stuff to your store. In a flick of a switch, Justin Trudeau could make the country better, more prosperous, and ease inflation significantly. He will not. Because this is exactly what he always meant when he said, a carbon tax will make you make better choices. It'll force better choices on your life from no flying to simply living smaller. He said it a dozen times. Take a listen. Mr. Speaker, what the Prime Minister doesn't realize is Canadians are suffering. Canadians are suffering because he's increasing taxes year after year, month after month, on the backs of everyday Canadians who cannot afford the price of gasoline. Mr. Speaker, his government, with the help of the NDP, are raking in billions of dollars of extra revenue while Canadians are suffering. So when will the Prime Minister, for just a moment, empathize with everyday Canadians, stop spreading information, and give Canadians a break? The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, we will continue to spread information, including the information that is that the price on pollution actually gives back more money to people in the provinces where it's imposed than uh, it takes away. An average family does better uh, with this price on pollution in places like Ontario, Saskatchewan, Alberta, because of the price on pollution. And indeed, they should talk to their colleague from New Brunswick who wanted them to return to the federal measure because it puts more money back in the pockets of Canadians. We will continue to have Canadians back and fight climate change. So it's no coincidence that Trudeau's focus, his obsession, all his legislative efforts are not to help people economically or not to heal our country after the rift that he spread between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. All of his proposed laws are extremely political. I mentioned his censorship laws. Uh, and now, and on Canada Day, he's locking down the capital city. He's not welcoming Canadians to the capital in a moment of patriotism and healing, it's locked down tighter than North Korea's capital. And just yesterday, Trudeau ministers released some hate study, some anti-hate campaign brochure for schools, but it's actually full of hate for his enemies. In this hate brochure, published with taxpayers' dollars, where a liberal cabinet minister was in attendance, they say that the Conservative Party, by name, Trudeau's personal enemies, are full of hate 
And they say the old Canadian red ensign, the old flag that predated the liberal flag of, uh, of Pearson, that that is a hate symbol. The flag under which Canadian soldiers fought in two world wars, that is officially a hate symbol under the, uh, the, the government's anti-hate kit for schools. It is a school kit. It's incredible. But just as incredible is the reaction from all the establishment. I don't even think the Conservative Party of Canada spoke out against that. So many things are co-opted. I told you the other day of Monty Solberg and his Alberta Reset campaign. Monty Solberg, a former Reform Party MP and Stephen Harper cabinet minister, is having a conference featuring Gerald Butts and Mark Carney for a great Alberta reset with the Build Back Better phase out of oil and gas. Everything's going in the wrong direction. Our symbols of the country are being destroyed. Not only is the Red Ensign now a hate symbol, as our friend David Menzies told us, <laughs> handing out a flag for Canada Day, schools are now requiring parents to sign permission forms. Did you see that story? Take a look. David Menzies for Rebel News outside Sunderland Public School here in Sunderland, Ontario. And folks, the reason for our visit has to do with a story, a curious story involving permission slips that went out uh, earlier this month to many parents who have grade one students attending this school. Essentially, the Sunderland Lions Club thought it would be a jolly good idea to give grade one students a Canadian flag, but Principal Jennifer Fisher, she wasn't quite sure this was a good idea. She had concerns, so out went permission forms, I'm not making this up folks, to make sure that it was okay for a grade one child in Sunderland, Canada to receive a Canadian flag. And I guess no good deed uh, goes unpunished these days. So here is what Principal Fisher said in her bizarre letter to parents. Quote, on June 28th, our grade one students will have the opportunity to meet with a member of the Sunderland Lions Club to learn a little about the history of Canada and why we celebrate Canada Day. Students will also have the opportunity to receive a Canadian flag from the Sunderland Lions Club if you prefer that your child does not receive a Canadian flag please return the bottom portion of this letter to the school prior to June 28 if you do not return the form your ch your child will receive a flag end quote principal fisher then noted to parents that if they had quote concerns about this presentation of the flag end quote then they should contact the child's teacher. Our anthem has been revised. Our capital is locked down. The city of Ottawa is saying if you shout too much at Canada Day, you'll face a thousand dollar fine. I'm not sure how all these things fit together, but it feels like it's a controlled, managed, purposeful decline of our country, choosing to waste away. This airport disaster is not happening throughout the United States. It's just not. It's happening in Canada, and it's been happening really for 90 days straight. It's not a whoopsie. After a while, you have to think, maybe this is on purpose. I don't know if you saw Sheila Gunn-Reed's story from just this morning, but as you may know, 
the passport offices are a disaster too. One of the reasons for that is most passport staff still are working from home. How does that even work if you have to get passports to the public? Well, listen, if Justin Trudeau can take two years off from work, why can't his staff? But again, I don't think that's a mistake. I think that's what he means by build back better. I think that's what he means by the Great Reset. If you can't get your passport, you can't travel. You can't burn fuel. You can't see how other countries are coping with COVID. They've moved on. So what did, what did the liberal government do for the passport crisis? According to Sheila's story, there is a um, request for proposals on the government re- procurement website this morning that to solve the passport problem, get this, they want to buy chairs. Chairs. So not to make the lineup shorter, but to make the lineups permanent but slightly more comfortable. So if you're sleeping outside a passport office, you can at least sleep in a chair. That's the government's solution to long passport lines, sometimes 24 hours long. They'll buy you a chair. They're so certain that the problem will not be fixed in weeks and months that they're buying chairs. I don't think this is an accident. I don't think it's possible to be this incompetent by accident. I say again, Justin Trudeau hasn't actually built anything or fixed anything. But amongst the Canadian government, I think there's enough civil servants who still do care that they could fix the airports, fix the passports, fix these things. But I don't think they're being directed to. I think we are being taught that our country is evil and racist and full of hate, that our history is nothing but genocide, and our future is endless struggle sessions with woke. I think we're being told that we'll be that we'll owe nothing and we'll be poor, but we'll be happy. We won't fly anymore and that we will be built back better in Trudeau's image. I find it a dark time. I'm not trying to be pessimistic. I'm just telling you what I see. Stay with us. More ahead. phenomenon about Canadians writing about Canada in foreign media. Sometimes liberals write in The Guardian or even The New York Times and they paint a picture of Canada that I just simply don't recognize. Um, It's like they they want to embellish the story to make Canada, it's almost like they're virtue signaling on behalf of the entire country. It's it's odd though because it's not really reporting, it's more... um, you know, what what they wish Canada were, they wish it were more of a liberal icon that was more successful, just the way, I don't know, during the 80s and 90s, Sweden was held up as the social democratic ideal. I feel that's how it is. And it always bothers me when leftists or liberals misrepresent Canada abroad. But there are a couple of Canadians who managed to write about Canada in foreign outlets in a very sober-minded way, even critical sometimes, and sometimes even with a conservative point of view. My friend J.J. McCullough does that in the Washington Post. And what I, I, I love to read it. He's a great writer. But to watch the gnashing of teeth of those who are trying to create this foreign image of Canada as something that it isn't, that's actually my favorite part of it. It's not just that J.J. is a great writer. It's watching the rage. We own Canada's foreign reputation. How dare you? Well, our next guest is someone else who manages to find a large foreign platform to talk about Canada. And I love, love, love his articles themselves. 
But I have to tell you even more, I love the reaction to them. I'm talking about Rav Aurora. Just a few weeks ago, he wrote in the mighty New York Post an essay called Once a Liberal Democracy, Canada is Now an Authoritarian State. We'll talk about that and other things. Rav, what a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Ezra. It's good to be here. Well, it's I'm great. Surprised, to... <laughs> I'm surprised we haven't talked yet. It's been a while. I know. Well, it's a delight to, to have you on the show. And I like your writing for itself. And if it were in the National Post or the Globe and Mail, I would like it too. But I really like the fact that you are disabusing the world of their fairy tales about Canada. I mean, I think there is sort of a foreign liberal media class that looks up to Justin Trudeau as some role model. And I think you're bringing him down to earth a little bit with columns like the ones you've had in the New York Post. Yeah, yeah. Trudeau has this international reputation of being an icon for freedom, inclusivity, welcoming people, freedoms. But, you know, if you, if you look at my story, right, my family came from India about 10, 15 years ago. And we, we left India in search for more freedoms and for more ability to pursue the dreams that we wanted to pursue. And that's financially, creatively, vocationally. And I, I know I'm, I'm here pursuing my, my dream as a writer and a podcaster and, and doing pretty well for myself. But as I, as I mentioned in that New York Post article, it's stunning to me how here in Canada, my freedoms are more restricted than they would have been in India in terms of my freedom to travel and to like, like go to a gym for a while when gyms are closed down, go to a restaurant, um, travel across Canada, travel from uh, through, through the border to go to the United States. All these things are restricted for a very long time, unlike my home country in India. So it's, it's very bizarre for myself and for my family members as well, who are, who are also unvaccinated, who, you know, we're, we're here in the supposedly free liberal democracy, yet we're not able to go back home and see our relatives, or we're not able to go to a gym for a while, or not able to eat out at a restaurant. Like, this is not the Canadian dream. This is not the free liberal democracy that we thought we moved to for a while. And thankfully now they've, uh, they've suspended the vaccine mandates, um, although who knows what happens with that. But for the longest time, I felt really let down as an immigrant from an immigrant family who have done so much to qualify and to get here and to really rise from rock bottom. My, my parents working at restaurants, working in taxi, doing all sorts of small jobs in order to pursue Canadian freedom. And yet here we are. And our freedoms were just fundamentally taken away for the longest time. You know, you're talking about the lockdowns, and obviously I, I share your views on that. But even though some of the lockdowns are lifted, including some of the travel bans, we see the echo of the authoritarian flourish that Trudeau had with the Emergencies Act. The reason I want to, I mean, I want to, you, you have another important piece that I want to get to today. You looked at a new myocarditis study. But back to this authoritarian thing, just for one minute. Today, you know, we're in the lead up to Canada Day. Parliament Hill is literally locked down. There's a fence around it. There's one gate. You have to please the police officers to be allowed in. Uh, they're shutting down streets. I see the Ottawa City Council is saying that you can be fined $1,000 if you shout or make an unusual noise. What? There's so many strange things. The police chief is saying he might arrest you if you have signs that don't 
uh, that he doesn't like. Uh, we had a reporter there yesterday, David Menzies, who said that police said if there's any flags that insult Trudeau, those will be banned. Well, hang on. I mean, that's what they do in North Korea or Iran. Is that really how we roll in Canada? So I agree with you on the lockdowns, but it's much more than just the COVID lockdowns. It's the censorship. It's the police partisanship. I think that Canada really is losing a lot of its freedoms. Yes, it was all accelerated by COVID, but there's a lot of other things too, isn't there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it, it's absolutely grievous the, the way that they're locking things down ahead of Canada Day. And, you know, I, I thought this was a place where we could, you know, patriotically celebrate and in all different colors and forms and with all the diversity that characterizes Canada as a free liberal democracy. Yet we have these bizarre statements from the police chief. I mean, I, I don't know what, what that even means of, of signs or flags that are critiquing Trudeau um, that might be considered transgressive. I mean, we're, you're walking on a pretty slippery slope there when, yeah. when we're getting into that kind of subjective place. I, I, don't, I don't know what that, what that would look like um, and how they would enforce those kind of rules and restrictions. But it's, again, another example of why I think our country is further and further plunging into this left-wing authoritarianism starting from lockdown starting from covid mm -hmm. with vaccine mandates and all, all along i've been watching this and and early on during the lockdowns i was actually for them and a lot of my conservative friends were like oh do you just wait just wait till this progresses and we see more and more authoritarianism and i was like you know what it's okay just a few weeks few months all right all right and then vaccine mandates came and that really woke me up and it's hmm. like oh wow yeah. this is not free liberal democracy that i thought i moved to so we're, we're seeing this more and more and with, with the online censorship as well, the bills that are uh, being passed right now, trying to regulate the internet more and more to promote uh, cultural Canadian content online. It's, it's really bizarre the amount of control that the Liberal government is exercising. And it's, it's really strange to me how many Canadian elites are just falling for it. I mean, if I think I wrote this in uh, Glenn Greenwald's Substack. I wrote a big essay on the truckers' protests uh, in back in February, and one of the things I said was that Trudeau has become the monstrous authoritarian leader that everyone feared Trump would be. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And because because Justin Trudeau is on the left, and because he supports LGBTQ2IA45 plus rights, and because he is inclusive and likes brown people apparently, and, and dressing up as brown people, whatever. But but because he has this banner of, of liberal inclusivity, he's allowed to get away with many things that, you know, Trump didn't, didn't even do, despite his, you know, horrible character and all the, we, we uh, you know, bad faith things that he arguably did. We're, we're seeing a lot of this restrictive clamping down of opposition, of freedom here in Canada, and it's largely going unrecognized and uncritiqued because the elite media class is on the side of Trudeau. You know, Trump never brought in a censorship bill. Trump never jailed his opponents, had them. He didn't have them arrested. Trump was a doer. He was a fixer. I mean, um, he he had a rhetorical flourish. He was a showman. You could even say a showboat. But he got things done. The irony is now we need a fixer, doer more than ever. How do you fix our Canadian airports? They're just a mess. How do you fix inflation? How do you fix things that aren't working? We could use a doer and a fixer. But instead, we have what they always projected onto Trump, like you say, the, the authoritarian 
I love it when you publish these things in the New York Post because it drives the left crazy. But I want to talk about a, a serious piece of journalism that you did on your own Substack, and that's at ravaurora.substack.com. Did I get that right? Yeah. And uh, it's about myocarditis, which is a word that I don't think one in a thousand person people had ever heard of until a year ago. It's the inflammation of the heart muscle, pericarditis. It, it's a it, it's a related inflammation. Uh, there's no such thing as mild myocarditis, by the way. Now you've you're not a, I don't think you're a technical scientist yourself, but you looked at the latest medical research on the subject. And you published this on Substack. And the reason I mentioned your website is because you cannot publish that sort of thing just anywhere. That will be taken off Facebook. That will be taken off Instagram. You publish it on uh, YouTube, you will be demonetized or your entire channel will be canceled. You will have the official fact checkers um, call it fake news. But you actually delved into a medical study. Why don't I give you the floor for a couple of minutes? Tell our folks what you discovered in the, the latest medical research and what you published on your Substack. Yeah, yes, it was a very long piece. And this was a part two to my original vaccine myocarditis article uh, from January. And I'll, I'll just quickly say, by the way, that the reason why it's on Substack is not, it's, it's not um, because I just wanted it to be there. It's because I was forced to self-publish. <laughs> it's there, you know, I, I'm not going to name any people, but, but even conservative leaning outlets don't want anything to do with that kind of reporting. It's, mm. it's really, it's really unfortunate. And I, you know, you know, there are some outlets that were interested in it. And I, as an independent writer, I, I pick which outlets that I would like to associate with. And certain outlets are a little too ideological for me and I stay away from them. But this decision to self-publish was, in some ways, really unfortunate because it's it was it, you know it's up to me and I had to send this to, to people on Twitter and email it around and you know try to get the word out there myself. But it's it's really unfortunate that we live in this kind of climate where this kind of reporting I think should be published in the New York Times or the Atlantic, like legitimately. It's I, I was talking about peer-reviewed studies. I interviewed somebody. I somebody who had vaccine myocarditis. I interviewed a professor at Stanford um, and, and, and we can, I, I can lay that out for you a little bit now. So I, as a young male, let me just first of all say, as, as a young male, when I started seeing the vaccine mandates last year and started looking into the costs and the benefits of this and who should be taking this, I, I noticed like, oh, okay, there's a heart inflammation risk here. It's not zero. And the, the, the earliest data we had from Israel was showing like a one in 5,000 risk of developing myocarditis after double vaccination. And at that point it was totally dismissed as conspiracy theory. Anybody who even mentioned that, like Alex Berenson was, was reprimanded and punished on Twitter and eventually banned for saying things like that. But now over time, many things that were considered first right-wing conspiracies, many things that were just merely speculative are now, um, being shown in clinical research that this is a real risk that we, we seriously downplayed and ignored. And I, I guess I can start with the, 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 the individual that I interviewed, a South Asian 33-year-old man working in law enforcement here. He was super healthy, super fed, regularly exercising at the gym, really takes care of his body's uh, takes care of his body. And he was forced to get the vaccine because he's he's a federal employee. He's, he's part of law enforcement and he wasn't interested in it, but he just, you know, he, he had to, so he did. And after the first shot, the first Pfizer shot, 
he experienced these intense heart palpitations for a little bit, but because he wasn't notified, there was no public messaging on this. There was no public awareness. There was no honesty on the part of public health authorities that, Hey, there's this known real harmful risk associated with the vaccine. And if you experience this, you should go to the hospital right away, or you should see a doctor. So informed, you know, informed consent was totally violated. There, there was none of that. Mm-hmm. There was no information. And, you know, in the first place, I think vaccines should have never been mandated mm-hmm. or even publicly universally recommended to everybody over the age of 12 or 15. But then, okay, if you're going to distribute the vaccines, if you're going to mandate it, which is monstrous to me, at least give the public information about this. Like, hey, mm-hmm. if you feel chest pain, you should see somebody right away. Mm-hmm. But this individual, he didn't know any of that. He just got the vaccine. He didn't even know what myocarditis was. The, mm-hmm. You know, that was not even a word in his vocabulary. Mm-hmm. So he just brushed it aside. And uh, eventually the, the, the palpitations subsided. And then he got the second dose about 30 days later. And a, f- a few days after that, he experienced this horrible burning chest pain and he, he was vomiting repeatedly oh he wasn't thinking straight and he 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 felt like something was just like consuming him on the inside of his chest and and he's a very rough and tough guy you know he's very sort of when i talk to him he seems very uh dispositionally kind of conservative and you know he, he's not one to complain he said he never he's never called 911 before and he wasn't going to he thought it might have been food poisoning or some other illness that was mild uh, but then his girlfriend forced him to call 911. You know, shout out to her. She, she basically saved his life. The ambulance comes and they measured his heart rate. It's 210 beats per minute. Oh, my and God. They're, they're stunned. Explode. They're stunned he's alive. They had to shock his heart back into a normal rhythm. And, and, I, and I won't give you all the details. People can read the whole story online. But he gets to the hospital and the doctor looks at him right away. And, and then, by the way, he lucks out because he's, at, he's in Victoria at the time at the Royal Jubilee Hospital that has a specialized cardiology unit that were able to diagnose him right away. If he was at a different hospital, things could have been a bit more complicated. But the doctor looked at him right away and he's like, this is vaccine myocarditis, like 100%. And after that, he's in the ICU for, for several days. He's given five medications and he's, he's five, six months in, still not able to exercise, go to work. His life has been totally ruined. He was going to get married, move to a new place. He was um, progressing in his career path, all those things were totally put on hold because Justin Trudeau chooses what you do with your body. Now you don't have that individual freedom. Yeah. Well, that's an incredible story, and and uh, of course, there's many like it, and and many don't get reported either to the government um, or certainly to the media. Now, when you said there was a one in five thousand risk, I think you said that was an early stat. What are the stats today, and what are they by age breakdown? The reason I ask is in the very first days of this virus, we didn't know a lot. There was a lot of misinformation in the real sense of that word, not the accusatory political sense of that word, a lot of guesswork. But within a few months, it became pretty clear that this was a disease that targeted the elderly, and especially those with underlying conditions. In a way, it's just like other coronaviruses. It's like the annual flu. Um, if you're 80 years old and sick to begin with, yeah, be careful. But if you're fit and 33 like your friend, um, you don't really have to worry. So a one in 5,000 risk, and, and maybe you can clarify for me what the risk is. Um, if you are at a lower risk of the virus, 
the vaccine, if it's a higher risk, you, you ought not to take it, I would think, unless the risk of the virus was so deadly. And again, getting the virus for most people, it's very survivable, depends on their age and their fitness. So if you are very at risk from COVID-19, I understand taking a medicine that even has a riskiness to it. But the way you described your, your law enforcement friend, 33 fit, working out all the time, no health problems, to make him take a vaccine that is not fully tested yet, that's still deemed experimental, when the risk of myocarditis was quite likely higher than any risk he had from the virus, that is a form of statistical murder. You're making a decision. If you're going to dose 20 million or 30 million people, and you know that the stats from the vaccine suggest you'll have this thousand, this many thousand cases of myocarditis and this many hundred or dozen will die. But you know on, the, on a large scale that you're only likely going to save a fraction of that from the, the virus. You are making a choice that will actually kill more people than it saves. If the stats are right, what are the stats? What are the percentages? Yeah. Yeah, so in some sense, we're still getting more data as we speak. And a year from now, we'll have a much more definitive picture, right? Like all these things are still very, very new. And that that's, you know, initially when the vaccines were rolled out, when people were talking about risk, the people on the other side, the, the pro-vaccine zealots were like, oh, there's no evidence for that. There, there's no evidence for myocarditis. There's no evidence of fertility issues. So therefore, just take it. It's like... That's not how it works. <laughs> you have to show this is safe and effective. You can't just say there's no evidence of it and then just distribute it and administer it to tens of millions of people all of a sudden. You actually have to show that this is something that's safe and effective and that it has a lasting impact. And initially with the vaccine, even this idea of waning efficacy was considered a conspiracy theory. And that's that's one of the reasons why Alex Berenson former New York Times reporter was also uh, banned from Twitter. Um, but in terms of myocarditis, there was a paper uh, in Oxford, at Oxford University in December, that definitively showed that for men under the age of 40, the risk of vaccine myocarditis is far higher than the risk of uh, myocarditis from infection, from, from code infection. Hmm. And they, they show that for, for Pfizer and for Moderna. And now we had a, a, another new study that came out in, um, it was a, a large scale Nordic study and it looked at 20 plus million people who had gotten the vaccine. And they looked and they, they measured the outcomes, they measured the side effects and they, they broke it down by age and by gender and comorbidities and all of it. And for, for men between the ages of, I think it was 16 to 24, um, the, the risk of infection-induced myocarditis, so, myo, so heart inflammation from COVID itself, was about 13.7 per million cases. Now, for, for the vaccine, the, the, the rates were far higher, even with, the first, even with the first Pfizer dose. And Pfizer is far less likely to uh, induce myocarditis in those who get it. But, but even with the first Pfizer dose, the rate was about 15 per million. For the second Pfizer dose, I think it was about 30 to 40 per million. But for um, the Moderna second dose, which is associated with the highest myocarditis rates, it was 185 cases per million. Hmm. Now, when you multiply these, like for some people that, 
you know, that number is not going to really mean much because when you're dividing by a million, that, that's, that's, that's pretty small. But you have to compare that to the risk of COVID, which we know is vanishingly small for young, healthy people. Um, and when you, um, you know, when you compare the relative risks, it's, it's absolutely clear that vaccine myocarditis is a, a, uh, a real concern. And the, the, the individual that I interviewed as well, this is just, just anecdotal, but this speaks to the prevalence of this problem. He, he told me that at the hospital he was at, he was the third vaccine myocarditis patient at the Royal Jubilee Hospital in the past 45 days. Hmm. Okay. That, that's, that's one hospital in Canada, three vaccine, three hospitalized vaccine myocarditis cases in 45 days. That's one out of 1300 major hospitals in Canada in a span of 45 days. When you multiply that out, you're getting thousands of cases, right? Hmm. If, if that's indicative. Um, and, and also one thing to add to that too, the cardiology clinic he was at, he was the fourth vaccine myocarditis patient in recent weeks there. Okay. Hmm. How many cardiology clinics are there in Canada? Yeah. So when, when you multiply this out, it's clear that what, what, what has been done here has been this large scale experiment and there are un, un, uncounted uh, victims of these aggressive mandates. And there's no accounting for that. There's no, there, there's no apology. There's no justification. There's no real accounting for any of why this was done and why this was not just universally recommended, but universally mandated. It didn't matter if you were prior infection. It didn't matter if you were 25 years old or if you were 75. And this is, I, I think, just the the prime reason why I've just woken up to this. Yeah. This is this horrible authoritarian nightmare that we live here in Canada. And we don't even know its effect yet on children uh, who are being mandated in uh, certain jurisdictions. Well, Rob, it's nice to meet you. Great to talk with you. I'm going to put a link under this video to your Substack for people who want to read the details, because I know you gave us some stats off the top of your head, but we'll link to the actual uh, essays that you wrote where I know you footnote things carefully and you link to the primary sources. Great to meet you. Uh, keep fighting for freedom. It's wonderful to hear. Keep annoying the bad guys. And thanks for making the time for us today. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. And and of course, anybody who wants to follow my work, I, I'm pretty much going independent at this point for this kind of writing, the vaccine reporting. So so please subscribe at ravarora.substack.com. It's much appreciated. Right on. Well, we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Rav. All right. Cheers. Thanks, everyone. There you have it, Rav Aurora. Stay with us. My uh, thoughts on your letters next. Hey, welcome back. I got some letters for you. Catalin Radulescu says, in all the previous years, the summer was the season with the lowest infection and death rates. Now that most are jabbed, we have a sixth wave in the middle of the summer. What is the point for the jab then? Well, I, I take your point, and um, one might say, if the jab is not actually a vaccine, why are we still calling it that? Uh, vaccines, by definition, for over 100 years, the definition of a vaccine was something that you take it and you will not get sick. You just won't. Um, I saw that Dr. Anthony Fauci himself, uh, the mask maven, the uh, jab joker, he got COVID, which tells us that nothing is working. Um, why are we still doing it other than 
you know, as they say in Latin, qui bono, who benefits? Well, tens of billions, trillions of dollars has flowed and a lot of power. M. Mars says, anyone want to bet the liberals will say in the coming weeks that all these problems can be solved with a newly designed digital travel pass, an app? Well, you're exactly right. Why do you need that app, that Arrive Can app? Why are all these apps so essential, especially now that you don't need to be jabbed to fly within Canada? Well, the app was sort of the point of it. As Yuval Noah Hariri of um, the World Economic Forum said, uh, COVID was the shock that got us to agree to the surveillance state. Now that they've got us using these government apps, you think they're going to give that up? Jaspar says, Tucker Carlson nailed Trudeau to the cross yesterday. It was on a sampling of his special program. Had a guest that knows Trudeau well. Well, I'll have to take a look at it. When you say he nailed Trudeau to the cross, that implies that Trudeau is um, some sort of Jesus-like figure. I don't think he is, but I, I, I think you just mean that he, he nailed him with facts. Uh, Tucker Carlson is an example of a foreign journalist who is doing work that Canadian journalists won't do, scrutinizing and being skeptical and opposing our government. The trouble with Canada is that 99 plus percent of journalists are literally on the payroll of Trudeau. How could you possibly expect them to criticize Trudeau with anything other than kid gloves? You get better journalism about Canada from the Daily Mail of London, from the New York Post and from Tucker Carlson than you do from the Toronto Star, the CBC or the Globe and Mail. That's just a fact. Well, that's our show for today. We'll have a very special episode tomorrow on Canada Day. Of course, we have reporters in Ottawa on Canada Day to look at the lockdowns. Until then, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, see you at home. Good night. Keep fighting for freedom. David Menzies for Rebel News here near Parliament Hill. Well, we just saw a little action occur. It's Wednesday evening, uh, two days before Dominion Day, and a man was taken down by several parliamentary protective service constables. Uh, my colleagues, William and uh, Maurizio, are filming it as it unravels right now we don't know what he did uh, we don't know if there was any violence or vandalism involved but hopefully we'll try to get answers for this Kyle, did did you go through the screening or did you leave the did you go through the screening or did you jump the fence? I, I, thought that, I didn't know why they were chasing me. So I came over because I thought you were safe here. I gave my booklets on the street. My booklet.
My books on the bench. Well, folks, I'm with Pastor Alvin. He's all the way from Red Deer, Alberta. He's been here since March, if you can imagine. And uh, he has told us that the person that we just saw arrested by about eight or nine uh, parliamentary uh, protective service officers, his name is Kyle Vincent Boisel, I believe. And um, Pastor Alvin, uh, what happened? What was the reason for that takedown? I would say that these guys, he's been calling them out, confronting them, telling them exactly who they are. He, he was the, one of the first guys, actually the first guy uh, in, in February when they wrestled him down, uh, down over here. And uh, he got thrown down. He got uh, kneed, busted ribs, got punched in the head, rifle butted in the head. He, he's the guy. But wait a minute, what for? Was he um, assaulting an officer? No. Or? Had his back, had his back to these guys. Had his back to these guys, and they just yarded and pulled him in, just like this. So this might be one of the cops that was involved with that. And this was on a public street? Yeah. And so he turned his back to law enforcement on a public yeah. street, and evidently that's a crime in Ottawa now? Apparently, okay, yeah. Then. Yeah, and so he was calling them out over here today, just on Metcalf here, and... Uh, so they don't like that mm. when you get called out, eh? Okay. They don't get, uh, nah. you know, you can do it a little bit. But then obviously, you know, you went maybe overboard. I don't know. I wasn't involved in that. But Now, we had a brief interaction and um, uh, not much was accomplished. But I was curious, as you know, uh, Pastor Alvin, the hill is closed off. There's only one entrance in. It's literally airport style screening. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, did he hop this fence no. or... No, he saw he saw them come running. Okay. They came over here. Okay. And then he tried to beetle into there. And then that's when they wrestled so him down we, there. So is this maybe uh, his so-called violation that he didn't go through the security properly? Possibly, yeah. But okay. they've had it in for him. Okay. He's he's been here since, you know, since uh, well since the truckers convoy and, and before that. Okay. So he's been a thorn in their flesh, and so finally they. they you know, they want to get rid of him. And they said they had a warrant for his arrest. I don't know the details of yeah, the warrant, but how would you describe his character? Is, is he a violent person at all, or uh, does he do anything that's unlawful? No, no. the things that what we what he's been teaching us and we've been uh, teaching him yeah. is be at peace, be at love. It's it's love and be at peace. You know, uh, we can say things and uh, you know maybe confront 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 the people. You know, being a hypocrite. You say one thing, but then you do the next, you know, but not, not, nothing violent, nothing violent. And that's the whole premise of this whole, whole thing. It's not, it's not to be violent and just to be loving and, but be a thorn in their flesh. Well, you know what? Nothing surprises me anymore, uh, Pastor Alvin. Just uh, 48 hours ago, Tamara Leach, uh, you, you know, was uh, was arrested. Allegedly, she was in breach of her bail conditions. We don't know uh, what those conditions are that she breached. But uh, I don't know. You know, we're coming up to Canada's national holiday. Canada is thought of as one of the great democracies in the world. Does, does it feel that way to you right now? Very tense. Very tense. Not feeling like that at all. No, there's tension in the air on the grounds here. Yeah, I mean, they've got us, the streets locked down. Like, we're, they figure we're a bunch of terrorists or something, you know, and that's so untrue. I mean, we just want to demonstrate we want a voice. We want to be heard, you know, so, so we're well, here doing that. 
Well, I know you're not a terrorist, Pastor Alvin, because if you are, you'd probably have a $10.5 million check in your pocket. But yeah. that's the that's the uh, atmosphere right now in Ottawa, folks. Like I said earlier, it is not one of celebration. Uh, it, there's a tension in the air. It shouldn't be this way when we are so close to celebrating our birthday. For Rebel News, I'm David the Menzoid Menzies.